0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your spirit will be with us, that we will uh, draw closer to your kingdom and, and knowledge of love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number three in the quarterly Proverbs, and the title this week is A Matter of Life and Death. And the memory verse is Proverbs 6.23, and it says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And when you hear that, what do you think about that? What does it mean? Why is the commandment a lamp and the law a light? Why? Well, check the SDA Bible commentary on this particular passage. And this is what the commentary said. It says, those who regard the law as an arbitrary forbidding of desirable pleasures have an entirely perverted idea. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. The law is a lamp to enlighten the mind and to show the way of happiness, peace, and eternal life. So do you agree those who present God's law as arbitrary have a perverted idea of the law? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did too. So that when was that written? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know which version that was. I think it was '86. I think it was the '86 version. Um, so how is law a light? <clears throat> What's well, only a light if we understand it through the design law lens? The light shows the way. Yeah, the light shows the way, but it only enlightens our mind if we understand it as design law. God the creator, his laws are the protocols upon which the fabric of the cosmos is built to operate. When we infect the idea of God's law and make it no different than human law, a system of rules put on and authoritarily enforced externally, then this is actually what begins darkening the minds of intelligent beings. And if we go through history, uh, as far as we can tell, of the universe, you know, prior to lucifer's rebellion in heaven there was no concept of law the angels in heaven just lived in harmony with the way things were they loved god they loved each other but lucifer's allegations began hey there's this the, god's a dictator he's got rules if you don't do it he's going to coerce and pressure and the third of the angels had their minds darkened by these lies god created the earth and built the earth in eden to run upon what kind of laws the laws of nature the laws of health design law the law of love and there's perfect harmony and enlightenment Satan comes along in the garden as a serpent. Did God really say that you can't eat this fruit? If you eat this fruit, you're going to you're going to oh no, you're not gonna die. Yeah, he might kill you, I understand, but you're really not gonna die if you eat this. There's no natural law or design issue here. There's just a system of rules, and God's a rule giver and a dictator, and this is what God's really like. And of course they believe the lie and the world became darkened. And then God worked through his friends in human history to try to bring light, and he gave a beautiful theater in the Old Testament to act out a system, an enacted system of the plan of enlightenment and and how if you sin, sin severs the circle of life, and it was acted out symbolically by confessing sin on the head of an animal, and then the circulation was was severed, showing that sin severs that circle of how things are built and things die, and we can't live this way. But that system also became infected with a, a legalistic approach to it, whereas the system rules you better or else. And by the time Christ came, well they were well, even before Christ came, they went into perpetual darkened systems of, of worship and often into slavery and so forth. And then Christ, the light of the world, the light who lightens all men, he comes to live out the law, showing that God's law is a law of love where we give to bless others. Uh he all power he received in John thirteen. And what did he do with his power? He healed, he washed feet, he blessed others, he didn't coerce. woman caught in the act of sin and adultery, thrown down before his feet. Neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to save you, to deliver you, to heal you. But they said, we have a law. You've broken our law. You've healed on the Sabbath. We must stone you for this. We must crucify you. See, they darkened their minds by accepting this lie that God's law is like human law, the system of rules that you must enforce rather than how life is actually built to operate. So God poured out a spirit after Christ's mission was complete on earth. Pentecost and the minds of people were enlightened. And the early Christian church lived communally, sharing of themselves, giving of themselves, living in love, refusing to go to war with the state, refusing to try to get the right senators elected to the Senate in Rome so they could change the laws. Instead, they, they lived their life, the law, but Satan countered again. Constantine converted, and Christianity became infected with this idea that God runs his universe like Constantine runs Rome. We have this imperial dictatorship going on, and the world entered a period of darkness known as the Dark Ages. And then, after years of the Dark Ages, then what happened? A Reformation came. And what was the Reformation? And notice there's something that happened simultaneously with the Reformation when people break out of the most oppressive dictator-type rules that were really, really arbitrary they started breaking out and started reforming and coming back to a knowledge of Scripture. The re- Renaissance happened, Enlightenment in all areas of of humanity happened. Uh, people began to to think and reason again as they came out. Uh, science and and then, science happened and they started looking at natural law, how things are designed to operate, and more enlightenment happens. But Satan countered attacked again by focusing simply. By contrasting design law, the laws of science and the laws of nature, with the arbitrary irrationality of much of the imposed religion laws that had happened, that are not even in God's word, to where thinking people fractured and severed their, their belief in God completely, and the idea of evolution and atheism came, and it leads the world in a different type of darkness. Where are we today? Where do we find ourselves today? Still in a battle to move towards enlightenment. Moving back to a knowledge of God as revealed in Christ. God is the creator, the designer, who, whose law is the law of love and is the protocols upon which life actually operates, at war with this imperial dictator view of God, that God is an angry, wrathful deity who, who is offended because we've broken his rules, and, the, and, and he has to, in order to be just, inflict punishments, and, and he will kill you, except Jesus stands there to plead with him, to protect us from him. This this dark view. Yes, do you want to comment? I heard a very interesting story one time about Charles Darwin. Um, a biography written by a descendant of his. And he talked about how, um, as a relatively young m- man, he lost a daughter. His daughter died. Um, they went through everything. He was a man of science. He had a religious, you know, foundation. And when his daughter died, he he ended up turning his back on God. He ended up, you know, I think, going headstrong into the opposite direction and I just found that interesting. I think that was, again, playing on that battle that went on you know, between understanding his understanding of God and how he let that affect him for the rest of his life. And, and you look at the doctrines of, of much of Christianity, regardless of denomination, and there are many doctrines that are actually just arbitrary nonsense. And it makes no sense whatever. And the thinking person comes along and goes, wait, that doesn't make sense. And that's not because God doesn't make sense. That's not because God's word doesn't make sense. It's because humans have come along and infected God's word with this imperialistic human way of thinking. That's why the Bible says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. Because God is the creator. We can't create, so what we do is we make rules. God builds the fabric of the cosmos. I got this email this week. It says, Dear Dr. Jennings and team at Common Reason Ministries, thank you for your message of God's design law and love and the message of true healing which Jesus accomplished and offers to me. My husband and I have experienced significant healing in our happiness and how we see each other in a short year after learning that the imposed law system is not from God. We are eager to learn and treat others with the same love, other-centered, as God has shown us through your message, and to and to keep giving him glory telling others of his character of love and life and giving and freedom. It is beyond me how any church leader, pastor, or theologian could not want to believe the design law construct that offers the most realistic explanation of forgiveness and righteousness by faith that I have ever heard. And I doubt that anybody can make this stuff up. It is just so not like the way we usually think. The punishment by a Roman dictator explanation is the perfect one for us to make up. My sinful nature naturally wants to be controlling or to be controlled to make me feel better about my survival and and my guilt how sick is that anyway i have really prayed i have i have i am really praying that this message will spread now that god has given me a chance to see the truth about him i have started to read eg white book the desire of ages and it finally makes sense she was an amazing friend of god I'm a substitute teacher in an adult Sabbath school class. And uh, one Sabbath, our young uh, adult Sabbath school teacher came up after I was teaching and said, I heard a lot of Tim Jennings from you today. (laughs) His wife held up the printed notes from your class and I held up mine. We were both excited and surprised. I'm very happy that at least two families in our church are not only benefiting from your ministry and message of truth, but that we are teachers and can keep urging our fellow believers to think and gain from these truths too. We are happy to be making a contribution to your ministry today to the Internet and hope uh on the Internet and hope that God will multiply it for his use, especially as we prepare for the G C in San Antonio. So you see you see the the, the contrast when we get out of this imperial dictator view and come back to see him as a designer and his laws it changes our entire experience first two paragraphs it says the two two brothers were left at home alone but given a strict warning by their mother to not eat the cake she had just baked to make sure that the boys would obey she added the threat of punishment when she left it took the boys only a few minutes to decide to eat the cake anyway <laughs> This is not a matter of life and death, they reasoned. Our mother would never kill us, so let's eat. (laughs) So what is this story a good example of, and what is it a not so good example of? What is it a good example of? Arbitrary. Arbitrary laws. Arbitrary laws, okay. Childish thinking. These are children. This is children's type of thinking. This is what it's a good example of. Um, they are concerned. Notice where their focus is. Their concern is whether mommy will be mad and what mommy will do to them. They are not concerned about living in harmony with how life is designed, only with mommy's response to their behavior. This is childish, because they and because of this childish thinking, and also understanding the nature of mommy that mommy actually loves them. They conclude that there's nothing wrong with eating the cake because mommy won't kill them. <laughs> However, this is a bad example to teach the problem with eating the cake without permission, the actual problem. This makes it appear legal, makes it appear imposed, makes it appear that the problem is the threat of a paternal punishment or maternal punishment. But the real problem is the breakdown of love and trust in the hearts of the boys. Their actions would incite in them fear and insecurity. They would likely, when mother asks about the cake, begin making excuses and blaming each other. It wasn't me, Lord, it was the woman you gave me. If you didn't put her in the garden, I've never taken that fruit. So they become more fear-ridden, self-centered. They act to activate in their brain fear circuitry, which activates inflammatory cascades, which is actually damaging to body, body and brain. There's actually physiological and real-life consequences that happen when we deviate from God's design. Yes. From Keith Olson, please ask Dr. Jennings to speak on how the commandments were given to a nation of ex-slaves who had known nothing of true love, only punishment and abuse from their masters, leaving them multi-generational survivors of mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and sexual abuse. Yeah, no, this is a good question. And this is exactly why the law was given the way it was. It was given the way it was because of the condition of the mindset of the people. What do you do with a group of people who, after having the demonstration that all the polytheistic gods of Egypt were nothing? This is what all those plagues were. The Nile god was, in the first plague, shown to be nothing. The frog god, nothing. The fly god, nothing. And all these gods were attacked by God. Notice God wasn't attacking the people. He was attacking their gods by showing that the gods of Egypt had no power. And why did he have to start with these displays of might and power? Because at level one, level one thinking, how do you determine whether something's right or wrong? The most primitive level is punishment and reward. This is a slave mentality. This is where they were. It was right to go in and have sex with the visitor from across the city because if I didn't, my master would punish me. And if I did, then I got the next day off. So it was the right thing to do. This is, this was punishment and reward, slave mentality. This type of mentality doesn't even require a brain. Bacteria, plants, the most basic life forms will grow towards reward and avoid painful stimuli. Okay. And it's Satan's goal to destroy the image of God in us and make us no different than brute beasts, creatures of instinct driven by reward and punishment. That's his goal, okay? So this is very basic. So what do you do with this group of people? This is why God, by the way, starts with the establishment of power and authority because that's all they can comprehend. And so, and it says in Deuteronomy, I did all this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. I'm establishing my credentials so you'll trust me because they can't comprehend anything else. And then he gives them the law. And immediately they move, they try to move to level two. And level two, let's make a deal. So so immediately at Exodus, what do they say? All the Lord has said we will do. Lord has said do this. So if we do this, then the Lord will bless us. So we know if we keep all these rules, and he's promised to give us health and wealth and all these other things. And so we'll do it because the Lord has said it. But what happened? They didn't do it. So God, of course, he writes the law for the purpose of what? What was the purpose of the written law? For them to actually say, okay, we'll do it. Was that the reason he gave it to them? What was the reason he gave it to them? To diagnose them. them. It was an MRI of the soul. Paul tells us in the New Testament, the law was not given for the righteous, it was given for the wicked. For the slave trader, for the murderer, for the adulterer, for the abuser. It was given for those who have wickedness in their heart. Because Paul says in Romans, we would not know what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And, and, and so the law was given so that sin might increase or abound. What does that mean? The actual amount of sin or the amount of sin that we see and recognize increases? Yes, our awareness. So the law was given to diagnose them so they could realize that there's something wrong with them. That was his purpose, to convict them, to diagnose them, because you can't solve a problem if you don't first identify it and then admit you have it. So the law was given to bring them to conviction and this is why, because they, they were at very primitive levels. Okay. So we go back to this, what it's not a good example of. This is not a good example of the actual problem with sin. It, it, because the problem with sin deviates from the design. It actually sears the conscience, warps the character, damages the reason, causes fear and insecurity, causes us to become more self-centered, fractures relationships, increases guilt and shame. It actually damages the one who participates in it. But I suspect there are people who will read this lesson... And we'll think it through on that childish behavioral level, but conclude, God doesn't actually love us as much as this mother loved their kids. Because he will kill you. Will kill you. This is how it will be taught.: it is of life, Yes, if they ate that fruit, God would justice require God kills him. He's mad, he's angry, he's offended that they did. They disregarded his rules, and his righteous wrath will have to kill them. But good thing, Jesus was on hand. He loved us enough to step in and calm his daddy down. And then, and then we, we, we can get back in God's good graces. You know how? This is how it's taught in the penal system. Here's how we can get back in God's good graces. He's mad at us. He wants to kill us. But when he sends his son, if we kill his son and offer him his son's blood, then he'll be happy with us. <laughs> Think that through. That's exactly what they teach. That we kill him, offer God, to go to God and say, God, I've killed your son, and here's his blood because I know you were a mean taskmaster and you're going to kill me, but, but I know if you see your son's blood, you'll love me. Really? Do you understand the blood is metaphorical? When Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he is not talking cannibalism. It's a metaphor of internalizing Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. The law is written on the heart and mind. We become like Christ in mode, method, motives, attitudes, so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see the selfish, rebellious, distrusting human. He sees a trusting, loving person who looks like his son in character. Could you repeat (laughs) that? Could I? Okay. So where do I start? (laughs) when God looks at us, when God looks at us. The, mode, the, method, the Yes, when God looks at us, because we 've partaken of Christ, because it 's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, he doesn 't see the rebellious self that I was, He sees the trusting me who 's opened my heart to the spirit to had the spirit poured in, so the spirit has reproduced all the attributes of Christ in me, so that I trust God, I love Him, I love to do what He wants me to do, even though i 'm still beset by temptation temptation is not desire for. In other words, Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. That's what the scripture says. And we see in Gethsemane, he had powerful human emotions that tempted him to avoid the cross. But every time the temptation came, he gave instead of going with the temptation. So he was not sullied with sin, even though he's tempted by sin. We may still be tempted in this life, but our true self doesn't want to be that way. And if we ever stumble and fall, our true self, this is Paul in Romans 7, oh, what a wretched man am I? I don't want to be this way anymore. Why am I so weak? I want to be better than this. I want to live better than this. We're grieving in our soul because we've done something that that disagrees with with our reborn sense of who we are. But it's an actual control. transformation versus just a visual, can't see. Yes, it's an actual transformation of heart, mind, character, mode, method. Our, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our desires become in harmony with his We long to do what he longs to do. But we keep our individuality. We keep our personality. So a person who longs to love God and love others, uh, one person might be an, an extrovert who loves to go out, out outdoorsy and climb mountains. Another person might love to read books. Their personalities don't change but their character changes. Does that make sense? Yeah. But in your story, the boys would have probably gotten (laughs) (laughs) cake. Yes. So these ideas that God is an angry taskmaster and he will inflict and kill, it's a perversion of the law, as our own commentary said. Perversion of the law. Um, Remember, Jesus is the member of the Godhead through which all this creation was made according to Scripture. Nothing was made Everything was made through him. Without him, nothing was made so forth. Yes, Russell. As I was looking ahead to the lesson, I, I kept referring back to that text in Romans 1. It says that everything that can be known about God is visible through what's been made. There, there are no imposed laws in nature. That's right. Even though it's infected with a, an antithetical uh, principle, principle uh, it, there still are no imposed laws. It's governed by natural law. That's right. Excellent. So, and many read Genesis 1-1, in the day that you, or Genesis, not 1-1, Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you eat, you will surely die. This is how they hear it. In the day you eat, I will surely kill you. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that at all. See, in the day you eat, you deviate from how I built you to operate. It'd be like saying, in the day that you put water in the gas tank of your car, it will surely die. It will not run anymore. Yeah. If God had killed man after he had eaten, in reality, it would have made his law arbitrary, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would sustain Satan's position and made God to be the kind of person Satan always says he is. Yeah. The last paragraph states, In the end, our ultimate destiny, our eternal destiny, and what could be more important than that, rests on the choices that we make here and now. Now, I do believe it's true that our destiny rests upon the choices we make. I think that's well said. What do you think about that parenthetical? Insert there. The parenthetical that says nothing could be more important than our eternal destiny. Hmm. Do you think that's actually true? Or is that really directing us down again that salvation is all about me? It's all about me. Is there anything more important than you being saved? Moses, on the mountain, if you remember, was willing to offer his eternal salvation for the people. Paul in Romans writes, or the New Testament writes, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. How many parents would give their life to save their child? Is there something more important than your own life? See, that's what love does. Love actually puts others. But not only just others, how about a larger purpose? How many even in a human experience, Jesus said some will give their life for a friend, how many will give their life for a cause, a purpose bigger than themselves? Yes. So I, I understand where they're trying to go with that, but I do think that there's something bigger going on than just my personal salvation. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, As we saw in the earlier lesson, in Proverbs, heart represents the seed of emotions and thoughts. Uh, by telling us to bind the law upon our hearts, uh, the teacher means that we should always be in close connection with the law. Depends on which translation you're using. Some of the the older translations, like King James and the actual Hebrew of the Old Testament, our emotions are in our bowels, and our thinking is in our heart. The newer translations have elevated it 12 inches, so our thinking is now in the mind, and our emotions are in the heart. So if you look at First Kings three six three twenty six, this is the story where the 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 woman had lost her baby. She stole someone else's baby. They come before Solomon. Solomon's going to say, "Cut the baby in half." Remember this, okay? This is First uh, Kings three twenty six. First is out of the King James, and this is what it says. And I'll read it out of the Good News, which is a more modern translation. you it's know the difference. Then spake the woman, whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, "Oh my king, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it." And this is First Kings. Uh, out of the uh, good news, the real mother felt the real mother, her heart full of love for her son, said, "King, please, oh, your Majesty, don't kill the child. Give it to her." So you see how the new translations have elevated it from the bowels to the heart. <laughs> but in the old, uh, in in the actual Hebrew, it was in the in the bowels where your emotions were, and the heart where your thinking is. This is important because it, depending on which translation you're reading, uh, it's important to recognize that when the law is written on the Heart, or a man, where a man, so as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Where do we do our thinking? In our mind. See, this is, this is the, the way it is. So. so to have the truth written in the heart is to have it actually written into the mind. And by the way, where do you actually experience your emotions? In the mind, but the mind is so integrated with the body, we feel it in our body, but it's actually happening in the mind. This is where it happens. There are some theories that have been floating through psychiatry and psychology in the last 15 to 20 years where people are arguing that the seat of our emotions is in our actual physical pump in our chest called the heart or in in the in the body itself because there's great representation in the brain from the body. Uh, but my view of, of this is actually it all requires c- uh, cortex. If you think about physical pain, for instance, noxious stimulation happens in the body. In other words, I take a pair of pliers and crush your finger, I'm causing noxious stimulation. But you won't feel pain if I put a nerve block in your elbow and block the nerve. It doesn't make it to the cortex, you don't feel pain. This is what a dentist does when he numbs up your mouth before he drills on your teeth. It blocks the the signal coming to your brain, even though noxious stimulation is coming. So in order for us to actually feel anything, it has to have brain involvement, without the brain involvement. But... Because there's a close connection, when we're very emotional, we can feel it. Our hearts can pound, our hands can get sweaty, we can get nauseated, we can feel it in our internal organs. There's no question. And so this leads people to sometimes think it's originating here, but it's not. So what does it mean to be have the law written on the heart? I believe this is another way of saying being sealed of God. And the seal of God being so settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually intellectually with our minds, that we actually understand God, his design, his methods, that no lie can trick us out of it. We see it. We, And those of you who have come out of that imperial system to the design law system, you just can't go back to that system. It's just impossible to go back. Your minds, you've been sealed. Heart spiritually means to be sealed with your desire that you don't desire anything. This is this is what you long for, and and you, you don't and you don't can't be wooed back with your heart to long for the ways of the world anymore. So we'll go to Tuesday's lesson. The second paragraph it says when a religious person is tempted, the great the greatest temptation is to find a religious reason to justify iniquity. So examples of religious religion justifying iniquity. I'll pull the easy one out of the Bible, corban. Jesus confronted them on their tradition of corban. Corban was a tradition where if you were rich and you had elderly parents who needed to be cared for that were going to drain your resources, then you could say corban and you've dedicated all of your wealth to the temple, but it doesn't go to the temple until you die. So you get to live off all your wealth. But now none of it you're not allowed by their corban rules to use that money except for yourself now. You can't use it to care for your parents. And Christ confronted. You honor your mother and father, but you don't do this because of your human rules of Corban. You hide behind religion to do iniquity. So, what about racism and casteism? Have you seen racism hidden under the, uh, under a religious garb? Read, read some of Luther's writings. Some people argue that Luther was one of the reasons for, or at least one of the engines that helped fuel the Nazis. He was really anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. What about inequality of the sexes? Using religion to suggest that just because of one's chromosomal makeup, then if you have a Y chromosome, you're in a higher standing with God than if you only have two X chromosomes. (laughs) Thus, only people with Y chromosomes can be leaders in the church. What about the perversion of marriage with women being held in some form of subjugation in their own homes by an authoritarian dictator husband under the guise of religion? <laughs> it's not just Christianity. Look at the Taliban. But Christianity has done this too. What about retribution and vengeance done in God's name? I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a little truism. There is nothing more dangerous in the world than someone on a mission for God who doesn't know God. These are the most dangerous people in the world. Get your mind around that idea. You look at the heinous things done through human history. Most of them have been people on a mission for God, but they don't don't really know God. They have a distorted warped view. Last paragraph. It says, The law is the perfect antidote against the flattering tongue of the seductress. Only the imperative of the law and the duty of obedience will help us resist her alluring words, which can sound so true and beautiful. Really? Wow. Only the imperative of the law, thou shalt not, and your duty and obligation to obey, only that can help you avoid her alluring words. Wouldn't it be better to say the transforming power of the law? She said, wouldn't it be better to say the transforming power of the law? Yeah. What did you have to say? About? I was going to say, you know, you made a law that said that the punishment for child abuse was, you know, five years in prison. I'd say, that's no problem. It wouldn't affect me. And then you came back to me and said, well, now we're going to make it to the death penalty. It still wouldn't affect me because I love my kids. So the the concept of a law that's based on rules doesn't affect me if the love relationship is there. Does that make sense? Yes the law stop killing Israel from building a golden calf and having in front of it. Or you. duty to obey it. There you go.: See, when you view this idea of the law giving us some power under the Imperial Roman lens of a system of rules that require external enforcement, there's no power there. It actually drives more fear, more insecurity, more legalism, more judgmentalism, more Phariseeism. Um, those who, but those individuals who have some semblance of self-control. And there are people that have greater willpower than other people. There are people that don't struggle with certain sensual sins as much as others. There are people more genetically predisposed towards addictions for, let's say, okay? And, and they are. And, and, but there are some people that are not. And those people that don't struggle with those, what, what the church views as the, 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 the sins of behavior, you know, alcohol, drugs, sex, and things like that, um, they will often end up arrogant, proud, judgmental, criticism with a system that's not based on grace under the guise of religion. The Pharisees in Christ's day. This is this not true? Yes. But when we come back to design law, and we understand how deviations actually damage the one who's deviant. And we long for our Savior to heal us and restore us. And then when someone tempts us under the design law, see there's a question in here, it says, um, about the temptation. See, if somebody tempts you under, under imposed law, okay, let's do this. Well, you're thinking, if you're only thinking in imposed law, will I get caught? I actually have dealt with teens on human sexuality, and a question from teens often comes, well, if, if God forgives us from our sins, then what's wrong with having premarital sex and getting forgiven? <laughs> you see, if the only problem is God's mad, you broke his rule, you go, go to Christ and he has a legal payment for you, you take the payment and you get your account cleared up, then all's good. This is imperial law. And when you operate under imperial dictator law, these are the type of thoughts that come. When you understand design law, you can't deviate from the design law without damaging yourself. So what's wrong with somebody... I'll ask it this way. I ask, I ask patients in my office sometimes. "Why? What, what's wrong with a 12-year-old? Why is it wrong for a 12-year-old to smoke cigarettes? Some people say because it's against the law. Then I say, why is it wrong for a 25-year-old to smoke cigarettes? Why? Because it's against the laws of health, right? It's always wrong. See, the states can pass laws to make it legal in the state to do a behavior. The states can never pass laws to make cigarettes or tobacco or marijuana or alcohol healthy. They can't make them healthy. See, it's design law stuff. You can break it, but you can't break it and still be healthy. And so if somebody comes to you and offers you and tempts you with drugs, let's do illegal drugs. While doing the drug might actually be pleasurable in the moment you're getting high, it's also damaging. So your reason goes, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to damage me? And I don't need to be mad at you and hate you. I need to have compassion on you. Because I realize you're damaging yourself. I want to help deliver you. So the adulteress that comes and attempts You don't have to hate that person and want to stone them. You should have compassion realizing, well, I don't want to do it like Joseph. How can I do this terrible thing? And have compassion that their minds are so dark they don't realize they're destroying themselves. This is what design law does. So let's let's ask some tough questions. Because this is focusing a lot on the behavior, the behavioral do's and don'ts. Would it be sin for a person who understood that sexual behavior outside of marriage is wrong, for that person to knowingly, willfully, choose to over and over again go to another person knowing that they will engage in sexual activity together, would that be sin? You guys don't trust me, do you? (laughs) See, behavioralists would say yes. But I'm going to tell you a true story. I had a patient years ago who, who came to me, working through many of her issues. And when she was a child, her father used to come home and molest her and her sister. And it was a pretty much similar routine. He would come home before mom came home from work and go through his behavior with the daughters. But he would typically only molest one on any given day. Well, my patient was the older of the two girls. And after this had happened on several occasions, the younger, her younger sister, as time approached her dad to come home, would begin having panic attacks, hyperventilating, crying, become terrified, hiding under the bed. And so my patient purposely began going to her dad and presenting herself to her dad to protect her sister. Knowing what was going to happen. Understanding what the results were going to be. Was she sinning? You see, if you focus only on the behavior... The behaviorist would say, well, that's wrong, it's sin, she shouldn't do that. But we understand the motive. She was, see, sin is when we act in self-interest to gratify self at the exploitation of others. So the father was sinning. No question about that. And adultery, see, thou shalt not commit adultery, people look at that, very rules-oriented, regimented, legalistic-type thinking, uh, they'll think it's behavioral. But in this particular case, adult, uh, adultery actually is only when you're doing it self-centeredly. In this particular case, this was not an act of self-centered gratification. This girl hated every minute of it. It was disgusting to her. It was revolting. She w- would look for a way to escape, but she was willing to sacrifice her own in order to protect another. This was an act of great self-sacrifice. It was an act of great love. Was sexual relations between David and Bathsheba sin? Yes or no? Yes. When did it stop becoming sin? When did it stop being sin? Never. He says never. So David was never a man after God's own heart. He continued in a perpetual life of sin. But he did not. think he he married married her. her. Stopped when he married her. So this was at least his fifth wife. So if we should, uh, if I want to, you know, have sex with more than one woman, as long as I marry her, then it's not going to be sin anymore, yeah? Don't tell Christy. (laughs) There's (laughs) some selfishness left. Pardon. So, so as long as when we marry, is, is that the? When he asked for forgiveness for he, uh, Forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness. Does that require repentance? Yes. Yeah. And when repent, do we turn away from? Yes. Did he turn away from her? Or did he bring her in closer? <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Yes. selfishness. Left. Ah, now we're getting onto it. No, it was when selfishness left his heart as a motive. See, the action of the initial adultery was David was gratifying self. And what he did in that action injured Bathsheba. It injured her reputation. And in order to cover up, he then murdered Uriah to cover up to protect self. After all that was done, Nathan comes, confronts him. David is convicted and comes to repentance and has a change of heart. Now, what does he have? what's his heart motive? To save Bathsheba. To save Beth-sheba, To undo the damage as far as possible. And the unborn son. The, the, uh, the son died. Okay, so he prayed for it, but the son died. Okay, so so the point is, if David would have been the behavioral Christian that many of us are raised to be, he would have repented and turned his back on her. And in that society, where would she have ended up in that society? She could not own property. Her husband, who gave her name, station, reputation, dignity, was gone. She would have been an adulteress on the street, probably ended up a prostitute. That's where she have ended up. So David not only took her husband, he took her name, her station, her means of income, her livelihood. He took it all. The only way to restore as far as possible what he took was to marry her. And in marrying her in that culture, he restored her reputation, restored her name, gave her place, station, everything. So it was an act of selflessness on his part. This is when it stopped becoming sin. All right, Wednesday's lesson. First two paragraphs... Says right after his warning about adultery, the author starts about talking about another sin, stealing. The relationship between the two commandments, stealing and adultery, shows how disobedience to one commandment can affect the, our obedience to others. The attitude of compromise, to pick and choose in regard to God's law, could be even more dangerous than complete disobedience to the law. The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the inqui- uh, iniqu- iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the disregard disregarded outcast, or excuse me, the degraded outcast, it is that life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. He who is endowed with high conception of life and truth and honor does yet willfully transgress one precept of God's holy law has perverted his noble gifts into a lure to sin. Okay, And it says in the second paragraph, that was just the first, it says, poverty and need do not justify stealing. Uh, Desperation of our situation does not justify sin, in the second paragraph. I would say it's absolutely true. Desperation does not justify sin. The question is, what is sin? That's the question. What is sin? And the behavioralist will say, Transgression of the law, and then you'll say what law? And they'll say the Ten Commandments, and then it's all back to the behavior. And it is transgression of the law, but which law? The law of love. So give you have some examples. Let's throw some ideas out at you. The commandment says you should not work on Sabbath. And you're a doctor, nurse, EMT, paramedic, and you happen to see somebody who's been beaten, left side the road on Sabbath. Should you work, use your health knowledge and help them, or should you not work and keep the Sabbath? Compassionally intervene. Well, see, this is the parable of the the Good Samaritan. The Levites and the priest would not help because it would violate the ceremonial law. They're going to keep the law, so they're not going to help. It's not about behavior. It's about the motive of the heart. Those who actually love others on Sabbath would be glad to work to help save that person. Would they not? Yeah. How about this one? You're actually an aid worker, mission worker in Afghanistan. Taliban has kidnapped an American journalist and is threatening to behead him. You have an opportunity to rescue him, but to do so, you'll have to steal one of the Taliban trucks and drive him away. No problem. <laughs> 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 well, thou shalt not steal, the Bible says. Thou shalt not kill as you price. <laughs> but you wouldn't be killing. That would be somebody else's sin. It wouldn't be on your ret- ledger. You oh, can see? always leave it later for them to find. It'll <laughs> be okay. Okay, so we're not going to steal. We'll borrow. <laughs> right. and we'll leave $10 for gas that we used. <laughs> <Consider it money. laughs> hmm. How about if a person actually believed that stealing the truck in this circumstance was a sin that would eternally condemn them to hell, but they chose to do it anyway in order to save, in order to save this other person they were willing to, to give up their eternal life. Was that then a sin, or was that an act of supreme love? Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Isn't it interesting? All right. This week, somebody sent me an article out of a Adventist union paper called The Record in the Pacific Union. There's an issue that I was unaware of. It's been going on for at least two years now. I'm completely unaware of it until this week. I will present the article to you and see what you all think. Dateline changed in Samoa. On Thursday, December 29th at midnight, Samoa skipped forward a day to Saturday, December 31st, in order to align its calendar with Australia, New Zealand and Asia. In so doing, the government eliminated an entire Friday from the weekly cycle. The change resulted in Saturday being renamed Sunday and Sunday being renamed Monday. In line with biblical precepts on the subject, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Samoa continues to observe the biblical Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, irrespective of the date, of the, irrespective of the change in the name to Sunday. Similar changes in um, the international date line have taken place in Samoa's near neighbors, Kiribati and Tonga. Consistency has been the hallmark of the church's position. Blah 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 blah. So, in these three countries now. The Adventist church is split. What year was that? This has been going on for a while. 2011, 2012. Yeah, it's been going on for a while. I hadn't heard of it until just now. Okay. So, in, in the Adventist church is split. Some of them are now worshiping on the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday, that is now the date of, court, of their calendar. Some of them are now worshiping on the Sunday. What do you do? How do you, how do you problem solve this? I'm interested. What it was pretty. It was pretty straightforward to me. It really didn't seem to. It, 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 I think it took me about 2.5 milliseconds to figure this out. pretty straightforward. When you, when you look at design law, this is not a problem at all. <laughs> but when you look through imposed rule system, then it becomes very confusing. So let's let's work this out together. Design law. Obey okay, the seventh day. and then next Saturday, next Friday, you worship on that day. Yeah. Okay, so the seventh day. And according to some of these people, they've been doing it every year, but now the seventh day is called Sunday. You just keep worshiping on Sunday then. But another group said, no, it's, it's Saturday, we're going to go on Saturday. It's who they're worshiping, not the day they're doing it. Right. It's who they're worshiping, not the day they're doing it. Any other thoughts? <laughs> Can men change God's laws? Can men change God's laws? No. Okay. Well, so. we, we changed the calendar from Gregorian to Julian and back and forth. Later. But the weekly cycle wasn't affected there. Okay. Just the, day, just the date went from, the, it went from a Thursday, the, the 10th, the, to the Thursday, the, or Thursday the, the 9th, to the Thursday the 19th, or something like that. Well, we tried a 10-day week at one time, and it failed. Yes, yes. because they have a lunar thing, and not change. Lunar calendar is not a weekly cycle. Don't you like these kind of problems? <laughs> See, because it's making you think. It's making you think, Right. So, first question, it aligns themselves with Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. All those people in in Australia, New Zealand, and Asia who are Sabbath observers and worship on the Sabbath, are they not keeping the right Sabbath? So if they start worshiping with those people, they're not the right Sabbath anymore? How's that happen? I crossed the international date line when I traveled over to New Zealand and Australia. When I came back from Palau, it was very interesting. We were in Palau a few years ago, and we were in Palau. We left Palau on Saturday evening and arrived in Hawaii on Friday evening. <laughs> <laughs> we went backwards in time. We already had Sabbath. Does that mean, uh, you know, I, 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 get, I get two Sabbaths that week? Or am I on the wrong day now because I already had it? Now everything's off. Well, how does that work? The last <laughs> too. Pardon? You're blessed with two. Blessed with two, but wait, I already did it this week. I'm confused. (laughs) And so if I travel the other way, and I happen to travel on a Friday, and I get there on a Sunday, I don't have a Sabbath at all. (laughs) See, we actually are traveling on a Wednesday uh, when we go to Australia, and we leave on Wednesday here, we arrive on Friday there. I could leave on a Friday and arrive on a Sunday. No Sabbath at all. What happens to that? How does that work? F-7-3. F-7-3. <laughs> <Watching> movies, <though. laughs> so think it through with me. The issue is the international dateline. Where do you find the international dateline in Scripture? You don't. You don't. Arbitrary man made longitudinal uh, line. So the issue is, so then how do we know which day of the week is actually the Sabbath? It's the principle, not the day itself. It's the principle of worshipping the Creator God. There's a big truth in what you're saying, but can we actually still know which day of the week is the Sabbath of the Bible? How about the Sabbath that Jesus kept when he was here 2,000 years ago? Because I always like to look to Jesus. Can I do what Jesus did? Can I follow him in his footsteps, you know, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Can we know what day Jesus kept when he was here 2,000 years ago? Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Is there a group of people still living in Jerusalem, descendants of people who lived there 2,000 years ago, that are still worshiping on the same day of the week they were 2,000 years ago? Yes. Yes. And which day is it? Saturday. So, so align yourself with Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And then when the international date line moves, you're still worshiping on the same day they are in Jerusalem, either before or after if the day starts in Jerusalem. It's the only difference. But it's still the same day. If you move the day so that you're actually worshiping on a different day than Jerusalem, you're off the Sabbath now. What happened when they moved the date line is that people actually simply moved from the end of the Sabbath, uh, uh, the last Sabbath of the day, to the first Sabbath of the day. They moved into the beginning of the time zone, or, or, or vice versa. I can't remember which way it went. But they're still on the same day if they're with their new calendar. But when they move it to Sunday, they're actually not on Sabbath anymore. Does that make sense? Or did I confuse people? Yes. And in the Arctic, you don't have sunset and sunrise for three or four months at a time. Yes, and astronauts, what do they do? When you're on the lunar land, I mean, you're, you're on, the, on the moon, what do you do then? You see? So, but, but back to this question. So in the, in the Adventist church over there in, in the, some of these countries in the Pacific now, there are Adventists that are worshiping on Sunday... And Adam is worshiping on Saturday after this calendar change. Which's the issue here? Which day they're worshiping on, or does God look on their heart, knowing that they're wanting to honor him with the best knowledge that they have? What's the issue? Is it which day? we got to be sure and get the day Right? we got to figure this out, or is it they, they're doing what they believe is right with the knowledge they have in their heart to honor God? Paul addressed that with Sunday keeping. He addresses it in Romans 14. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. So then what about the rest of the Sunday keeping world? How should we look at that? Something for God to figure out. Let him. It is the condition of the heart. Yes. This is the issue. It's the issue. Yes. I thought that was an interesting mental exercise, though. All right, so how about maybe this one's a little bit harder, and we'll end up with this one. What about killing another person? Is it always sin to kill another person? No. And we're not talking about governmental, because the, the legalist imperial dictator view of God, they always immediately bring up, not when it's done under the ju- jurisdiction of the law. Then you can execute somebody as a punishment for their crimes under the state, and that's not sin. We're not talking about that. We're talking as an individual. He was smarter uh, Kill Murder, not kill. Remember that flight in uh, 2001 in, in Pennsylvania? Those guys on that hijacked airplane? Once they realized what was happening, they made a decision to attack the, the cockpit so they could stop their plane from being used to kill others. But in order to do that, they were going to have to kill themselves potentially or kill, kill those who, were, who had taken over the plane. What about, uh, well, true story, more than 20 years ago, here in Chattanooga, um, a man walks into the hospital and shoots his wife in the head in the ICU. Story was, they were married for more than 40 years, she had a massive stroke, and they had talked over and over again about how she never wanted to be kept alive artificially. This was the, before the days of, um, yeah, before yeah uh, uh, the... Um, Advanced directives that we give today didn't have those things back then. The doctors would not take her off, even though the husband said, Take her off, take her off. The doctors wouldn't do it. And so he went into the ICU and shot her in the head. Yeah.
1: Did it? I
0: didn't hear it. Is it sin? Was it sin? <clears throat> Did the man sin? Or was the man acting in love for the person he and honoring her last wishes? Hmm. Can we honestly know for sure? I, don't know. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid I was watching a western and in this western two cowboys were best friends for years and one of them gets captured by I think it was Apache Indians and, and they stake him out and, they're, and they're, they're torturing, there's thousands of them and his friend is sitting up on a, on a bluff above looking down and he shoots him in the heart to prevent the two days of torture that he would have to go through. I remember that. that. Was, 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 that a, was that a sin on his part? Yes. You, you can't kill anyone forever. You can only put them to sleep. I like that. I like it. It's true. You can't kill someone forever. You only put them to sleep. What about the person who walks in on a cracked-out, psychotic person threatening your spouse? What do you do? How about if that psychotic, cracked-out person is your 19-year-old firstborn son? And they've got a knife, and they're threatening your spouse then what do you do? Now, I'm going to really make it harder on you. Really make it harder on you. If you believe that your wife has already accepted Jesus Christ and is in a saving relationship with him, but you believe your son has not, then what do you do? You understand the implications of my question? If you want to spend eternity with both of them, what do you do? You see, there's no easy answers, are there? There's No easy answers. This is. Do you get a sense now why we're not to judge that you be not judged? Do you get maybe a sense of this last example, why God permits so much bad things to happen to some of his good friends? Because sometimes the people doing bad things come to repentance. Look at David and Uriah. David did bad things to Uriah, but David came to repentance. And both Uriah and David will be in heaven. When we look through imperial lenses, we only look at bad deeds that we think need to be punished. When we look through design law, we see people struggling who are sick at heart that need to be healed. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your truth and character of love, for how you've made this universe to run. And we realize we are so far from it, but we want to be back in harmony with you, with your design. We ask that you will send your spirit to settle us in heart, in mind, in character, into the truth, the truth of your love, your method, your principles so that nothing can shake us from it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.